have to say, though, after worship, I just wanted to skip the video. I mean, obviously you were in his presence. Oh, how he loves us. So I hope we can hold on to that because Advent is a lot about that. So Advent, it's a wonderful word. Um, in, oh, there we go. Um, if you just look at a basic dictionary, it's the arrival of a notable person saying event. Uh, you can talk about the advent of the new season of Game of Thrones. Uh, I mean, advent means just arrival. Uh, but in the Christian calendar, in the Christian world, um, there is this sense of the beginning of the year as this anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And in a very real sense, this series, this season, this time, we don't only anticipate uh, the first advent of Christ, but there is this incredible anticipation of the second advent of Christ. And the themes get mixed in, in both the prophecy and in the scripture and in our unpacking of it. Um, in, a, in a very real sense, the, the, the gospel stories in Matthew and in Luke are this incredible anticipatory and, and, and preparation. You, you read about Anna and Simeon, um, Elizabeth, <clears throat> the, the Magi who walked, I mean, long distance because they saw something in the stars, the, the shepherds, all of those stories. It's this, it's this sense of, particularly Anna and Simeon, they're, they're almost salivating. For when God would bring about his redemption, they're waiting in the temple, and this moment arrives. Um, I'm not a big dog person. Uh, my, you will like my wife better. Uh, I don't know that she's a big dog person. She's a big pug person. Uh, she loves pugs. And most recently we had two pugs. And um, the second one we got was, uh, do you guys know what a pug is? The, so we had a female, and she was the alpha. Uh, she was kind of a little scrawny for a pug. But Bubba, while very subservient, was he was a perfect pug. I mean, he walked on his knuckles. His chest was big, you know. And when we got we all of our dogs were, were pretty cheap, and so we got them used. And so he was a year or two years old, something like that. And, and his name was Bubbles. I'm sorry, a bruiser male pug is not a Bubbles. And so we renamed him Bubba. But it was later that I finally realized why they named him Bubbles. Um, while he was a subservient dog, he was not the dominant dog. He would roll over quickly. He would give in for everything. You know, Nebby got to go out first. Uh, ne everything. Nebby was the, the alpha. But, but when it came to his food, you didn't mess with Bubba. He lived for his food. And when he got older and his teeth weren't doing so well, he couldn't eat his food as well as he wanted to. And so we would pour water into his food and let it get soft. And I realized why they called him Bubba or Bubbles. Because when I would, when I would get his dish, he would run over and then I'd pour the food in and he could hear it. And he would start to salivate. And when I'd pour the water in and I'd set it on the counter, his salivating got so bad that there's just drool dripping down on the side of his jowls because he was so anticipating the season. My hope 
is this Advent season we can approach the presence of Jesus that way. My hope is that we can pick up the, the flavor of Anna, the flavor of Simeon, the flavor of the Magi, who in incredible anticipation, and because of that anticipation, did all to prepare for the advent of the Messiah. That we would salivate over God becoming like you in the incarnation with the clear and express purpose of making it possible for you to become like him. I mean, isn't this the great exchange? He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made, made the righteousness of God in him. It was this great exchange of, of, of my sinful nature for his divine nature. And so, um, Ryan was, was teasing Donovan today uh, in the back about his Pentecostal upbringing. Um, I met the Lord in the Pentecostal church. And uh, thank you. Not one brother in the house. <clears throat> and, and I really remember <clears throat> Sunday evening, uh, there was almost always an altar call, but it wasn't an altar call for salvation. It was an altar call to satisfy the salivating of wanting all of God. And, and we, would, we would collectively go just seeking God, pressing into God, desires of God. And, and quite frankly, folks, it was transformation. And so at the end of this service, we're going to have an altar call. Now, you understand it as communion. But you do realize that, that coming forward to receive the grace that is symbolized, that, that is embedded in the, 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 the bread and the cup. I hope as you come, you don't just come to, to do this ceremony, but that you can begin to salivate. For the presence of God that's represented in these symbols, it's transformative. Because in his incarnation, and then his crucifixion, resurrection, and then his eventual return, we have this incredible opportunity to be transformed, to become like him. And my hope is, while I understand altar call is not in vogue today, that today as you come. And by the way, um, if, if you're just kind of an observer of Christianity, if you're not, um, if you haven't said yes to Jesus yet, um, we welcome you. You're welcome here. You're welcome to participate. When it, but when it comes to communion, um, if, if you're at the place where you say, you know what, I, I think I want some of that. I think I, think I actually, I, I want, what you're talking about, I want to partake of Jesus. I, I want to be in on the goods. And you've never done that. Uh, allow communion to be your, your conversion altar call. It's an opportunity to, to publicly say before God, yes, I'm, I'm all in, God. I'm yours. And I receive what you have done. I can only get here because of what you have done. If, if, you're, not, if you're not there, that's okay. You can just sit. Uh, the rest of us will do it because I think a, a weekly or a regular reminder that we're all in because of what he has done is, is so critical. Does that make sense? Okay. Am I allowed to preach again next week? If, okay. Just not sure. Okay, so... Um, uh, there's, there are several kind of touchstone words of Advent, and they're actually pictured up here behind these first trees, the word of, of hope and of love and of joy and of peace. 
And we're going to unpack them biblically over the next four weeks. Ryan and I will, will tag team around that. But the word for today is, is hope. I want to illustrate that. I don't know if any of you are like to consume uh, current events, uh, but is anyone aware of kind of the weird phenomenon that has gone on in Inner Mongolia this last couple weeks? Yeah, say that loud. Yeah, there is this. So, so just Google it. There, there are these sheep that have that are in this big pen, and they started walking in a circle, and for 14 days. These sheep are, are walking in a circle. I think we have a video of it, and, and you can probably see it. It's weird. I mean, it's like really bizarre. And, and people are trying to say, what's causing this? Because no one really knows. Um, yeah, they don't normally do that. Uh, but, but what the, the best explanation I've seen is, uh, if you know anything about Mongolia or Inner, Inner Mongolia, Inner Mongolia is the Chinese portion of Mongolia, very poor. I mean, incredibly poor. And many of these sheep are in, in small sheep communities, and they have very small pens, and they have nowhere to go. And they suspect that what's going on that they've gotten used to these small pens and they get anxious in these small pens and so they start to walk the perimeter of the pen. And then when, they, when they're brought to this larger area for processing and there are all these sheep from all these other pens, they're used to these tiny little pens and, and dealing with their anxiety by walking the perimeter and although they can see the perimeter out there, all they can do is the habit of walking in this tight little circle. And that once one sheep does that, other sheep see it, and they just follow. And so for 14 days, they have all this area, and they're walking in this tiny little section. And I thought, you know, what an incredible uh, metaphor for some of us today. I mean, Jesus came to bring amazing freedom. And yet, how many of us find ourselves walking in the ingrained, repeatable pattern established by our own confining, sin-shaped pens? And not only do we do it, but other people do it. And we get into our mind that, that we don't even see what is out there. All we see is that sin-pen confined thing by our past behavior and everyone else is doing it and we walk round and round and round and round and folks, Advent is about one who came into that pen and walked outside the circle. That's our hope. That's our hope. Jesus entered the circle and broke free. Hebrews says it this way. Chapter 5, verse 7 through 9 during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. By the way, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you see that on the cross, but you, you, Hebrews gives us a unique insight into Jesus' actual uh, human existence. That it wasn't just on the cross that he had this loud cry, and, but, but that it was this, this ongoing longing of Jesus, seeing the human reality and wanting to live outside of that and calling us to live outside of that. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries 
and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And although he was the Son, this is the eternal Son of God, this is God incarnate, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Jesus stepped into the circle and then stepped out of it. And he becomes for us this, this possibility that otherwise we don't see. Okay, um, I'd like to, to move on um, because it, my experience, the hope that we have in the promises of the Word of God. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, this is a picture I took in September, October, when I was out in Yellowstone in the Tetons. This is a picture of the Tetons. And I'll talk a little bit about it because it's just a, it's a wonderful, actually a wonderful metaphor, again, for the hope of promise. Um, and I, I want to kind of walk you through it. And, and by the way, not only is a, a mountain range kind of a great metaphor for the, the hope of promise, but it's also a metaphor of prophecy. And people often get screwed up in prophecy because they don't understand the simple concept of, of how much of God's prophecy is, is, is like a mountain range. Um, you do realize that the promise of the Messiah that they were salivating for, they were living their life for, they were waiting for, it was prophecy. And they knew it would come. But you do know that, that they kind of got confused between his first coming and his second coming. They kind of meshed them together. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't understand. And if you look at, at, at mountain ranges, if you look at it from a distance, it looks like a monolith. It looks kind of two-dimensional. But if you get into the mountain range, you quickly realize that it's, that it's not two-dimensional. Um, I did not take this one. But in the middle, you probably can't read the words, but the, the really tall one, there's actually three mountains right there with that tall one. It's called the Cathedral Group in the Tetons. And there's, I wish I had a pointer. Um, I'll walk, forgive me for those of you who are online. You can actually read it. Um, that's Tiwanot. That's Owen. That's Tiwanot. And that's the Grand. That's the Biggie. And there are people who have thought that they could walk up Tiwanot and just kind of leap over from Tiwanot into the Grand and continue and complete it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The problem is that when you get into a mountain range, you realize that it's not two-dimensional, it's three-dimensional. And here's a, a wonderful picture. And here is up close, here's Tiwanot. And here's the Grand. And so often in the promises of God and the prophecy as well, what you have is an immediate fulfillment. God makes promises and you get this immediate fulfillment. But there's also this, this kind of in-life fulfillment. It's not just immediate, but you walk it out in your life. And then there is this eternal fulfillment. And by the way, the three big theological terms for that in the immediate, it's uh, justification. And in justification, the penalty of sin is gone. What you've done, the penalty of sin is gone. It's thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. But the in-life part is called sanctification. And here in sanctification, it's not dealing with the penalty of sin, it's dealing with the power of sin. And the promise of hope is that God, 
does not only want to deal with the penalty of sin in your life, he wants to actually root out the power of sin in your life so that you're no longer walking in that stupid little circle and you can walk outside. And by the way, the glorification one, that's the presence of sin. Because in there, there won't be any presence of sin. And so we, have, we, we, we understand hope in the sense of the immediate. We hope for the immediate. But we also hope for the in life. And then we, we hope for the eternal. Um, one of my favorite parenting, you know, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they won't depart from it. And so as, as parents, you know, so all my children are walking with the Lord today. But there were moments. There were moments. There is this immediate, but then there's this process. And so I want to unpack for us the biblical concept of hope that we have in the Advent. In both the immediate, the in process, in life, and then the eventual. By the way, let me show you this mountain thing really quick. If you have a Bible, you can turn um, turn to Isaiah 61, or if you want to be New Testament, you can turn to Luke 4:18. There's this wonderful story, and I'm going to go to Isaiah 61 because it's the fuller picture. But in Luke 4:18, Jesus walks into the the, the synagogue. And they recognize he's kind of important, and they hand him a scroll, and he takes the scroll, and he unrolls the scroll, and he reads from the scroll. And here's what he reads. He reads Isaiah 61, starting with verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me. By the way, uh, Luke quotes Jesus. He's quoting the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, kind of like the NIV of the day. And, and he's quoting it, and he says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. I mean, do you hear this getting out of the circle stuff? And release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and sat down and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And they were dumbfounded. They were dumbfounded, number one, because they knew the, the passage. Number two, because he didn't finish the passage. He stopped in the middle of a sentence. He went only so far, and he stopped, and they, and, you know, it's like, um, you know the Lord's Prayer that, that Catholics do it different than Protestants? I didn't know that when I was doing clinical pastoral education. And I was praying the Lord's Prayer with someone who was Catholic, and I was not, and we prayed it together, and... Uh, I got started, and she was like four sentences ahead of me before I ever caught up. And when I finally caught up, she stopped, and I kept going. So this is a passage they know, and hear what Isaiah says. Release from darkness from the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Folks, that's the second coming. That's the second advent. And when Jesus sat down, only the first advent was fulfilled. The only, and the other thing was, you know, no one, like, like reads the scripture, the one-sentence message. But he just sat down and did it. So, as we look at this hope thing, look with me, if you will, at both the immediate, the in-life, and then the longer term. So, here's a question. We know that, that Jesus has done it. He's done it all. 
and that, that we don't have to walk in a circle and we're free. But is anyone like me and find yourself back in that circle? I mean, where you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you're sick and tired of that. And, and I've been in this circle before. I've walked this circle. I've gotten out of it, and now I'm back in the circle. Anyone identify with that? Two of you. Okay, that's good. Boy, you did an amazing job pastoring all these folks before you brought them here. Unbelievable. That's awesome. So it's my conviction that the actualization of our hope often requires an ignition event. One sheep needs to show the possibility of life beyond the circle. And it's also my, my um, understanding that while Jesus is that one sheep, many of us in Christianity today still need another sheep to walk out the circle. It's why Jonathan Edwards and the First Great Awakening, Whit- Wesley and Whitfield, it's why Finney, it's why the, the Azusa Street Revival, it's why the West Revivals, someone just actually believed God for all that God said and lived according to it, and they got outside the circle, and everyone went, whoa! There was this incredible ignition event, and people actually believed they could do something that they never believed they could do before. Uh, there's a book by Daniel Coyle called The Talent Code. Um, Daniel Coyle uh, went out and looked at these hotbeds of talent. There are these moments in history when groups of people just exceed all, all expectations. Um, if you would go to Florence during the Renaissance, a city about twice the size of Winchester produced more artists, Michelangelo-style artists, than the previous thousand years of the whole world. You see these hotbeds of talent. You see it in, in so if any of you are baseball fans, the Dominican Republic, one-tenth of all the players in the, in the Major League Baseball comes from the Dominican, this crummy little poor island in the Caribbean? And it's unbelievable. And I've done it for decades. There are places where that's true of skateboarding. There's, it's true of chess. There's a, a little um, uh, uh, music, uh, it's not a store, it's a, like they, they sold stuff, but they also taught people how to sing. And in one generation, seven or eight major pop singers came out of that one small little place. And we begin to, he began to ask, so how, how does that happen? How do you get these hotbeds? And what he found was three principles, and I'm not going to go through all three, but the first one was there had to be an ignition event. There had to be someone who could show that something is possible that we previously thought was impossible. I get tired of people who tell me they can't help but sin. My Bible says, reckon yourself dead to sin. It does. Now, I don't know, maybe you read a different one. But it says you're free. That, 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 that there's not just justification, there's actually sanctification, that he deals with the power, that, that God can do something about it. So, some of you might know this, and <clears throat> I used this once before in this building, so those of you who were in the building when I used it, don't you answer. But, uh, Sports Illustrated in 1954 talked about the single greatest athletic accomplishment of the 20th century. Anyone know what that was? A four-minute mile. That's right. Roger Bannister, a medical student in Oxford, did what scientists said was impossible. There were physiologists who, who proved that the human body was not capable of going a four-minute mile. 
And in May of 1954, he did the single greatest athletic accomplishment of the 20th century. The fascinating thing is after he did that, John Landry, just 17, a few weeks later, an Australian runner repeated it. And within three years, 17 people repeated it. Because there was this incredible ignition event. I don't know if it's possible. But it would be amazing if one of us, in doing our business with God today at the communion table, stepped out of the circle and showed us what God has for us here at Kansas Community Church. Wesley used to say, give me 10 people that fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and I will transform the world. And I care not one whit whether they be clergy or laity. Might you be one? This is a picture of a tennis club, Spartak. It's in the outskirts of Moscow. It's a penniless, one indoor court tennis club that between 2005 and 2007 produced more top 20 ranked women tennis players in the world than the entirety of the United States of America. Two years, one indoor court poor. How did that happen? Well, five years earlier, Anna Kornikova won the doubles in, in the championship. And two years later, she repeated it. And between that and other championships, they won. She was ranked the number one female doubles player in the world. And she was, quite frankly, drop-dead gorgeous. And Every single little Russian girl in all of Moscow and beyond wanted to train at Spartak. They wanted to be her, and they were all in. And literally transformed one club to overproduce the entirety of the United States in this one sport. An ignition event. Where just one little sheep walks outside the circle. And people are amazed. Christ's incarnation was the initial ignition event for hope. But I think God's calling us to so walk in that that others go, man, I want to be part of that. So just so you don't forget this, I find that, that illustrations that are connected to people are often very memorable. And so I want to give one more illustration on this and then I'll move on. And whoever was kind to me, there's no clock back there telling me the time, so we're going to preach for a while. Um, so Ryan has really inspired me. Um, he, he runs. I'm serious, he runs, and he runs regularly, like 4, 4.30, he gets out, and he comes back smelling like, like well, you know. And, and like the other day, it was, it was like around 40 degrees, and it was raining, and he went out and ran. And then he said, he got honest. He said, yeah, he said, you know, I was doing really good and I've really, I've backslidden. I've fallen back and I haven't been doing much and I just need to get out and do it again. And so I want to help you with a Christmas gift. If you come on up here, I have a Christmas gift for you. As part of your ignition event, I want you every morning to wake up. This is a night shirt. Night shirt for you to sleep with. And you can try it on for us. So that, don't you love me? And, and my hope is that every morning when you get up, you'll, you'll have your shirt on and you'll look in the mirror and you'll see what's possible.
My wife suggested that I, I paperclip some dollar bills below, but I thought that was going too far. <laughs> there is a limit to what you can do from the pulpit. <laughs> okay, so let me go through really quickly. Um, so um, one of my favorite um, commentators, um, I mean, his commentaries are old. They're like 70 years old, and my college at the seminary didn't like him because his stuff is old, and they said, come on, there's newer stuff, and, and there is. But he was, he's an amazing linguist. Um, if he does a word study on it, it's just quality. And so, I, you know, I have my little book on New Testament words and then more New Testament words from him. And if, and if he has the word, I go because he shows the history of the word and the linguistic input of it and the, the payload and, and gives pictures and images and he understands the Koine Greek. And, and William Barclay's the guy. And um, he, he said this regarding hope. There's actually two words. One is hope the noun, and one is hope the, the participle. It's kind of like a, a verb noun, um, hope and to hope. And he says, these words are not of any particular linguistic interest. Well, that was sad. I'm preaching on the word. Come on, give me more than that. And then he said, but what that means is we need to look at how the New Testament actually used it. And so what I want to do is just give you a flyby, a quick walk through uh, many of the ways that are part and parcel, that are at the heart of our hope. Number one, we have a hope of the resurrection of the dead. This life is not it, folks. Your grandma, who died in the faith, lives again. And she will raise again on that last day. You, whatever you do in this life, is not the end. We have hope in an eternal reality, a resurrection of the dead, and we put our hope there. We have a hope in the glory of God, and this one's kind of tricky. What does that mean? Well, it, it means we will both see and be clothed with the glory of God. That my hope is not just that I will see all of God's glory, but that I, as a mere human being, will be clothed with that, that beauty, that glory there's a, a song and I asked Donovan if he knew it and he didn't. He said, me, said that I could do it, but I'm not going to sing it. But I'll give you the quick words. One day Jesus will call my name. As days go by, I hope I don't stay the same. I want to get so close to him that it's no big change on that day when Jesus calls my name. This is the hope of glory. This hope of not just seeing his glory, but being clothed with it. We have a hope of a new covenant, not a covenant of get blessed, get bad, get cursed, but a covenant of trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you are blessed. It's a brand new covenant, and that's our hope for today. We have a hope of righteousness. And folks, this goes back to the, in the immediate, I get the righteousness of Jesus as kind of a gift. It's, he just treats me as though I'm righteous. And it's just based on grace through faith. But in the great exchange, it's not just being treated. It's not just the penalty of sin, but he wants to root out the power of sin. And I actually can begin to walk in the righteousness. He does not just impute to me, but he imparts to me. That I can live different. And by the way, one day, I will live different. Perfectly. Uh, this last one, I need to actually read the passage, um, Deliverance, because... In, in this particular passage, it really is a focus of, of 
not the eternal, but the immediate. So let me let me read it for you if I can. Second Corinthians. Yeah, one, eight through ten. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. This is Paul talking. I suspect that there's some folks in this room today who are in despair. And there may be some people who are even in despair for life. And in this, Paul speaks, he, it's, an, it's an autobiographical. I, I, was, I was done. It was too hard. I couldn't do it. I couldn't walk this call. I didn't have what it takes. I despaired even for my own life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such peril. Folks, this is in the immediate. This is not just in the in life and in the long term, but in the immediate, God has the ability to deliver here and now. You have cancer? God can deliver. Is your marriage in shambles? God can deliver. Are your children wayward? God can deliver. I know that there are situations in this room that I do not know about, where there is this sense of, God, I need your deliverance. And our hope at Advent, a part of our hope, is the deliverance in the here and now. Now, sometimes that deliverance works out over our life, and it will be in eternity. I promise you in eternity. If you're His, it's full and complete. But our deliverance today is founded on the fact that it's a done deal in eternity. And I can step into whatever the situation is and hope in the one who came and delivers. Again, I don't know where you are, but Jesus delivers. And he delivers in the here and now. You know, um, triumphal second advent of Christ. He's coming back, folks. He's coming back. He'll set everything right. And this is Titus 2.13, but I want to read another passage. 1 John 3, 2-3. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. That our acts of sanctification, our acts of obedience, really do grow out of what he has already done, what he has accomplished. Uh, before I was a Christian, I remember going to bars and singing the song, In Heaven There Ain't No Beer. That's why we drink it here. That's not a good biblical principle, folks. We are engaged to him. Let's live like it. Eternal life. And by the way, this is not longevity of existence. All of you will exist forever. But this is the quality of that existence. I want to end with an allegory. It's an Advent allegory. And Donovan's going to come and, and play. 
And what I want to ask you to do is just listen to the words of Ezekiel. And if, if you listen best by closing your eyes, that's great. Think of this as a children's story time. That, that Ezekiel tells us an allegory. Um, I want to give you a little background on the allegory. Uh, the allegory is talking about shepherds and sheep. Uh, the shepherds in, of those days were rabbis. Now the shepherds are you and me, Ryan. So a big part of this is pointing at you and I. Um, the sheep were the people of Israel, and today it's the church. Here, your sheep. The wild animals are just normal, prevalent forces of destruction, people and systems, the demonic, selfish desires, these things that press in on us when we get away from the shepherd. The overfed in the flock and the weak in the flock, they're both in the flock, but the overfed in the flock just kind of trample out everything and ruin it for everyone else while they gorge themselves. And God's concerned about the weak. Uh, my servant David, in the analogy, David's been dead for a few hundred years. This is the Messiah. This is the promise to see Jesus. And the promised restoration is in the first and second advent, the incarnation to the glorification of Jesus Christ and you and I. Just like a child listens to a story, let your imagination run. As you listen to the advent allegory in the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds and clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over mountains and on hills, and they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks the shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for the wild animals. And because my sheep did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than the flock, therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against shepherds, and will hold them accountable for my flock. I'll remove them from tending the flock, so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flocks. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they're scattered on the cloud, days of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel. I will tend them in a good pasture. The mountain heights of Israel It'll be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing. And they will feed in rich pasture. 
I myself will tend my sheep and will have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. But the sleek and strong I will destroy, for I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture. Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you've trampled and drink what you've muddied? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove your flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you've driven them away, I will save my flock. And they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them because I, the Lord, have spoken. This morning, we have the opportunity to come to a celebration that Jesus inaugurated. And it began with his first advent, the baby Jesus. God incarnate, who then lived outside the circle. He lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life with the intent of saying yes to the Father's call to be the sacrifice for all humanity. And in his moment of, of inaugurating communion, he talks about, and I will drink it again with you in eternity one day. But between now and then, we drink it in remembrance of what he has done. I find often in Christmas, we, we get focused on the baby and forget the Savior. So as we receive communion today, I liked Ryan's direction last time. If, if you guys over here will come down front and then go back that side. If, if you guys will go back there and then come down this aisle, watch me close. If you guys will, will we go back? Okay, you come forward and then go back. And you guys go back and then come forward. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, the cup of the covenant. I invite you today to come to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who went before and comes after, the one who invites us outside the circle of just human existence into divine human existence. As you reflect and feel ready, come forward.
and partake of the bread and the cup. I'll ask you to take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat, and we'll partake together.